This morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 2. Um, we looked at John's gospel this past semester in RUF at, at Southern Miss, um, where I get to work with college students. Um, John's gospel can be summarized at, towards, the end of the, towards the end of his gospel. In John chapter 20, there's a verse, verse 31, that says, uh, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing them, you may have life in His name. Towards the end of John's Gospel, he tells us that, that if he were to record uh, all of the things that Jesus did in His ministry, all the things that He did that were uh, part of the way, uh, that he, part of His ministry here on earth, if, if all of the things that Jesus did were to be recorded, there would not be enough uh, space in the world to contain all of the books, is how John uh, describes it, but he tells us in John 20:31 that these things that, that he records in his gospel are written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing this we may have life in his name. So anytime that you're reading John's gospel, uh, whether on your own or you're listening to it preached or you're uh, reading it in some kind of Bible reading plan, remember that you can be looking for these, uh, for this reality that, that, that something about uh, what John has written is intended for us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that we may have life in His name. So we're looking for the life. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 of John chapter 2. So let's give attention to God's Word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What signs do you show, uh, show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, and the signs that he was doing, but, when, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him. For he himself knew what was in man. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. Let me pray before you consider it this morning. Father, we do need your help. Would it please you this morning to reveal to us something of your love? Would you uh, open afresh our eyes and give us soft soil in our hearts that, we may, that your word may take root and bear much fruit? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about this episode in the life and ministry of Jesus that uh, is recorded here in John's Gospel. It's something that can be... Uh, uh, confusing. It's something that can make us a little bit uncomfortable. I, I called uh, the title of my sermon is uh, sermon is using a whip at church. Um, 
To my students, I called it using a whip at church and other things that make you uncomfortable about Jesus. Right? That's, uh, that was a little too much to fit into the bulletin. But uh, using a whip at church, right? This is, uh, this, is, this is an angry Jesus. Right? He's, he's angry. And I, and I think it's fair to say that we, need, uh, that we need to know what to do with an angry Jesus. And so this morning I want us to look at why was Jesus angry? How should his anger bother you? And how should his anger comfort you? And before I do that, I'm going to turn on this microphone that I'm supposed to have on. And uh, I guess it is on. Let's see. may not be working, but I hope this, this works well here. The first question that I want us to think through this morning is why, why was Jesus angry? Look, there are a lot of things that we know about Jesus. Right? He was born in a manger. Uh, he was a wonderful and well-respected teacher. He was known as the Prince of Peace. Right? Within the first few words of the first sermon that we have recorded of him preaching, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. We know that Jesus said in that Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek. We know that he was not known as a violent radical, right? But something that takes place in this passage in the temple gets Jesus upset. Enough to take what seems to be uh, drastic action. What seems, and obviously he becomes, uh, at least from our vantage point, visibly violent. He's using a whip seemingly finding something uh, on hand that he fashioned into a whip and becomes brandish, comes, uh, into the temple brandishing this whip and, and knocking things over and pouring out buckets of money. An image that for some of us even might conjure up very painful or unsu- uh, uncomfortable or unsettling images or memories of someone in your life losing their temper or even yourself. Have you ever found yourself... i tell you what, I'm going to turn this off. Is that okay? Leave it on. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself feeling, feeling outside of yourself in anger? What some might label losing it. It happened to me once in an intramural softball game. When I, it's, it's happened to me plenty of times. It happened to me once in an intramural softball game when I was in college... Uh, something happened. Uh, I was I was playing with this new group of friends. Uh, they, you know, the expectation was that was that I was going to be a great softball player, and so um, I felt this pressure to sort of deliver on those uh, expectations. And something happened where an official, an umpire in the game, who I could tell uh, was an undergrad, uh, an uh, underclassman, was sort of being intimidated by an older player on the other team. And uh, a couple of things happened, and uh, this umpire made a call that I disagreed with. And uh, I came to that moment that a good friend of mine calls the escalation of commitment. Well, all of a sudden, I found myself uh, sort of decide, okay, this is it. I'm going out there. And I came sort of storming out of the dugout, which is out of my sort of normal nature. And I, and I was just sort of contesting the call and, and sort of screaming at the other team and, and, and uh, making a big... Uh, making a big scene. It was actually one of the first few things that I had done with the RUF group when I was at Ole Miss in Oxford when I was in college. 
Uh, and so some of the people even on my team didn't even know me. Right? This was the first night they'd ever met me, and here I come, storming out of the dugout, screaming at the other team, uh, certainly you know, not becoming violent or anything like that, but I just I was totally outside of myself, it seemed like. So much so that uh, it was a co-ed, co-rec team, and so um, I, years later, I didn't, I didn't know my wife at the time, but there was a girl, there was a couple of girls on that softball team who ended up being bridesmaids in our wedding, and uh, the only time or the first time that they had met me, because uh, my wife and I didn't know each other well in college, was that softball game. And so when my wife uh, said to her friends, you know, I'm marrying this boy uh, from Louisiana. He went to Ole Miss, but we didn't know him there. Uh, his name's Ben Shaw, and one of her bridesmaids said, yeah, I remember him. We played softball together once. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, man, this is going to be bad. Her, her perception of me is, is going to be terrible, right? Um, that's what happened to me on a very small scale. I saw something that I perceived as unjust or unfair to me or to, to people around me, and I came unglued, right? Mine was a bad example of, of anger, but it's important for us to note here that what Jesus does is not that. Jesus does not come unglued. Jesus does not lose it. He is certainly very in control. He's very purposeful in what he's doing. But, but I want us to think, what are the circumstances that Jesus enters into that necessitate this reaction that he has that surprises us a little bit? Right. This takes place in the temple courts Uh, called also the courts of the Gentiles. And the temple is where the people would worship God. It's the place where the presence of God is understood to have dwelled with His people. Right? That is actually what God wanted. He wanted people to know that He dwells among them. So that when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, Jesus, uh, excuse me, God's presence was with the people in the wilderness, in the ark, and it was kept in the tabernacle, this huge tent. So God lived in a tent when his people lived in tents. But now that the Jews were not in the wilderness anymore, it was uh, God's ark, the symbol of his presence, the place where his presence dwelled with the people was in Jerusalem, in the temple. And the people would go there to offer sacrifices right, and to give offerings. And it was a very serious and somber occasion to worship God to worship God in the temple. It's a, it's a, many of the psalms are written about going to Jerusalem and going to the temple, psalms of, of celebration and praise. It was a cause for serious self-reflection and a cause and a moment for repentance, but also there was a great sense of joy and awe at the magnificence of the idea that God is with His people. Certain times of the year, going to Jerusalem to the temple involved feasting and and ceremony and festivals. So, now in our passage, what we see are people selling animals and making change for people. Leaders uh, who who have had the access or the resources or the authority to to say, okay, this is what we're going to do here. And believe it or not, the actions that they're doing, the things that they're doing are not necessarily the problem. Right, those kinds of things might actually have been necessary. Right, People who came from far away, Jews who lived other places, would have come from a long distance to worship and they might have needed to buy animals to sacrifice when they got there instead of bringing something from far away. Or if they, if they had no such livestock 
to buy one when they get there to sacrifice. Also, people who gave money to the temple, like an offering or a tithe, and oftentimes their coins that they may have accumulated along the way were not coins that that should have been used in this context for one purpose, uh, for this purpose, for one reason or another. The problem is not what they are doing. They were, right, in, in a sense, helping people uh, be able to worship God as he prescribes for us in his word. The problem is where they are doing it. They're doing it inside the temple. Jesus basically says, get this stuff out of here. Stop making my father's house a house of trade. Look at this, this place where they were was set apart for the worship of God. And what is happening here is that certain people have decided, wouldn't it be so much easier if, just, if we just used some of this space in the temple, we bring the animals in here, and, and we sell them and, so that people can make sacrifices, or we, we, come, we bring in here and we set up so that we can make change for people so that they can very easily come in and, and make their offerings. We'll, we'll, use, we'll just use this space because what's this space really good for? It won't make that big of a difference if we just do it here inside. And before you know it, a part, it, a part of the place that was to be set apart to remind people that God is near and that He is worthy of worship, it's become a place that people want to repurpose for their own ease or maybe even for their own profit. So Jesus' anger is righteous and his actions are just because what is happening is an affront. It's an affront to what God has said. God says, this is how this space is to be set up. This is what this space is to be used for. And some of these Jewish leaders have decided, well, let's use it, let's use it this way. Um, I've become a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of a nerd this summer. I've started reading about uh, golf course architecture. And if golf isn't nerdy enough for you, um, try reading about golf course architecture. It's something that probably fascinates me because it just doesn't have much consequence on the broader global scale, right? It's just something that I can read about and not worry that um, what's going to happen next. But what you realize is that there are a lot of people that get really worked up about golf courses being redesigned, golf courses that were built in the 20s, uh, in the golden age of golf course architecture, when all of these great uh, architects built the courses in certain ways, and with all the change in equipment and all the change in technology, and I could just bore you to death, but suffice it to say this, there's a lot of people out there who want old golf courses restored to the way that they were built in 1919 or 1925 or 1928 by these old, uh, by these great architects of the past because they've been changed so much that they, that they don't fit the original intent of the designer. And that gets people really upset. And I'm kind of one of those people now. It's just fun to me to, to get worked up about that. But here's what happened in, in our context. What, what is supposed to happen in this temple... God's temple, what he has designed it for is that our attention is drawn away from ease and convenience, 
for ourselves, and it's brought into wonder and praise for a God who has loved His people, who's chosen a people and has made Himself available to them as, as their Creator and Protector and Provider. It is here in the temple that people make their sacrifices, reminding them that nearness to God comes at great cost and that it's not to be taken lightly. And that offering and offerings are made there, reminding them that all that they have comes from God and ultimately belongs to Him. So these money changers have blurred that distinction, right? And, and it's actually bad for everyone. It's bad for you and for me for it to become blurry when we think about who God is and what He deserves. It's bad for us to think about God in the wrong way. We'll talk about more of that in a minute, but, but there's another thing to note here. Not only have the Jewish leaders allowed the temple to become a market, there's something about the place that they, used it, that they did use for this purpose that's a real problem. They're using the court of the Gentiles. You see, God's chosen people, the Jews, had a special place with God in the temple. But there were portions of the temple that, God's, that by God's express purpose were for non-ethnic Jews. It was for people who weren't, weren't Jews, weren't God's people by blood, but, were, but had come to worship the one true God. There were special places in God's temple, in His presence, for outsiders. And you see, what these Jews had, these, what these Jews had done has, has taken, was to take a place that God had provided so that outsiders would feel welcome in His presence. These Jews had taken that space and said, well, this is just the court of the Gentiles. What do we really use this for? Let's bring in the money changers, and let's bring in the animals, and we'll sell them in here. So some of what has happened here is that the temple had been made less welcoming to outsiders. And that angers Jesus. Think about uh, even uh, uh, the, um, the Ethiopian eunuch in, in, in uh, the book of Acts he had gone to Jerusalem. He had heard something about the God of the Jews and he had gone there uh, to worship. Think if you would have come a long way having heard something of God from His Word or from someone who had shared with you or for some, for, from some Jewish family that had welcomed you into their home and you had made it to Jerusalem and you had been told that there was a place where you could go, even though you weren't a Jew, you could go and, and experience nearness to God through sacrifice and through offering, and you, and you get there and they say, hey, there's a court of the Gentiles just for you there, and you show up, and it's filled with animals and people making change for the Jews. I can remember going to visit a relative a number of years ago, and they said, yes, please come stay with us, and we showed up, and we got to the guest room that they had set up for us to stay in, and it was full of boxes, and you could tell that the bed hadn't been made in a while, and you could tell that uh, they really didn't, you know, they acted like, that we were welcome, but when we got there, we realized that the guest room was really a storage room. Uh, and we didn't feel as welcome as we might have otherwise. Does it mean anything to you personally? Does it mean anything to us as a congregation or community or a denomination that it angers Jesus that the temple courts of the Gentiles were not to be misused because he didn't want outsiders to feel unwelcome. Furthermore, Jesus actually has the right to be angry because he, and he tells us this in this passage, he actually came to be what the temple signifies. He came to be the presence of God with his people. So confusion in the temple offends Jesus because it hinders people from understanding himself. 
right? And the mission that he has been sent to accomplish by and for the Father, it, it, as they were confusing the use of the temple, they were going to misunderstand who Jesus was and who he came to be. A mission driven by love so deep and so intense that it breaks out on the people when there's a misrepresentation of it, when there's confusion, when, when it becomes hindered in the temple what it's supposed to be. And I think this brings us easily to our next point. Our next question to answer is, is how should Jesus' anger bother you? Look, John tells us that zeal for the house of God consumed Jesus. Jesus was so passionately connected to this place, this dwelling place of God, that he was zealous to see it revered as it should be. He wanted there to be proper use of it. Right? Imagine, imagine this, to take, take the illustration into, into total fantasy world. Imagine if you had the cure for cancer in liquid form, in, in, in massive sort of like silo canisters outside of your home. Just, just right outside your home. And uh, I, I lost my dad to cancer in December. I, my wife has lost both of her parents to cancer in the last seven years. All of us have been affected by cancer, right? Think if, if you had the cure for cancer in liquid form in these gigantic canisters outside your house and you were able to dispense it through a hose so that cancer patients could come and be healed by that hose and that treatment. And you went out and you walked out of your house one afternoon and your neighbor was using that hose to, to clean the rims of his tires. Right? You would have a just anger boiling up inside of you. Whether he knew what he was doing or not, you would say, that is not what that is for. Jesus' anger breaks out because of the misuse of the temple. Why should Jesus' anger bother you? Why should it make you uncomfortable? Because Jesus' anger is directed at any neglect of the holiness of God. It's directed at anything that misrepresents who God is. In this scenario, any time that by your words or by my actions... I'm misrepresenting who God is. I'm misusing His name. I'm misusing the talents that He gave me. I'm, I'm actually doing something similar to the, to the fictional character who's cleaning his tires with the liquid cure for cancer. Anytime we take something that God has given us and misuse it, we become the rightful object of His anger. Think about the way that we miss use things. Think about uh, sex. Think about alcohol. Think about good food. Think about all the things that we twist and, and misuse. Jesus' zeal can and does manifest its, in, itself in anger and wrath and it is real and it is directed at people and their actions and their neglect. Therefore, it should make us uncomfortable because we participate in that all the time, don't we? Now, it's important to keep in mind that Jesus' anger is pure. It's unaffected by sin. It is anger that pours out as, as a husband's anger would pour out against someone who's mistreating or misleading his wife. Without even a hint of malice, without any rage, Jesus' anger is pure. In other places, God's anger is called a fire that refines, that takes away impurities or poisons. 
But even as we see it in this chapter, it is forceful and it is even violent. Therefore, to be on the, uh, the receiving end, to be the object of that type of wrath and anger should make us uncomfortable. But there's another reality that we have to keep in mind, and, and, and that, answer, that is the answer to this question. How should Jesus' anger comfort you? Right? Where's the hope in this story that John tells us is going to be there? Where's the life, the new life in his name? How are we supposed to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and get life because of this passage? Well, the first part you probably detected, and so did the others, right? You can almost hear the animals shuffling about in the confusion and in the distance after having been driven out of the temple and, and the sort of the hubbub has died down and the last coin that has been dumped on the floor sort of spins to a stop and there's dead silence and someone says to Jesus, you'd better have some proof that you have the authority to do this. Right? Jesus was very evidently acting like this affected him personally. He was saying, you have, you have done this to my father's house. Not our Father's house, my Father's house. And Jesus doesn't give them a sign on the spot. In fact, He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus has begun to display His power when He changed water into wine just a few verses before. But now He's beginning to show His authority. I want us to... to, I want this to sort of sink down into our hearts this morning that that Jesus hates sin and he will destroy it no matter where he finds it because it's harmful to his bride it's harmful to the church it's harmful to you and Jesus drives out any impurity so so where is the comfort Jesus is angry about evil he will destroy evil God's wrath is good news And some of us need to know that. Some of you need to know that that injustice will not go unpunished because there has been some abuse that you have felt and experienced in your life that is so gut-wrenching and so life-shaping that that, that for you or for someone close to you, that, that if you thought that Jesus did not hate that, that Jesus was not angry about your mistreatment or injustice, if you thought that Jesus was not doing something about it, then, then Christianity would be worthless to you. Listen, Jesus shows us that even where there is misrepresentation of His goodness from within the religious community, His anger is kindled against it and He will act. And secondly, some of us need to realize that Jesus is God and that those who are found in Him have become His dwelling place, have become His temple, Right? So the beauty of the New Testament uh, gospel is this, and, and, and I would argue the Old Testament gospel as well, is that God's dwelling place with His people is now in us by the Holy Spirit so that Jesus is angry and is acting out and will act out against sin remaining in us. Jesus hates the remaining sin in my heart. And Jesus is fighting that sin And some of us don't realize that a fight against sin is not a fight against Jesus. It's actually a fight that's taking place in our own hearts by Jesus through us. No matter how dark you think it is, you you can feel the tables being turned over in your own heart. You can feel in your soul what is depicted in Jesus' actions in the temple. Your heart is beaten down like there has been a stampede of animals in there. 
and you lie in bed at night and you think that your struggle against sin is the most lonely and painful thing that you can imagine and that there doesn't seem to be hope. But the hope and the life in this passage is that the turmoil is not just your struggle, but that Jesus is doing the work in you. He is more determined than you are to drive out the impurities in your heart. And something, and sometimes, if not all the time, it hurts and it's uncomfortable. You have become discouraged and you've even begun to, begin, begun to believe that you are fighting against Jesus, but you are not. He is fighting for you. And the process, the process that we call sanctification, He's cleaning you out so that you can resemble the new creation that He is certain to make you. The promise of the gospel is not that you will not hurt. It is that the hurt you feel will be His cleansing of your heart the way that He cleansed the temple. And it is a passionate Savior at work inside you. He's not going to stop until He has created a new heavens and a new earth where there is no impure worship going on because that is where you will feel the most fulfilled and affirmed. You will be there what you are created to be. And as confused as they may have seemed that day in the temple courts, and as many of those people may have said, man, he sure seemed serious. He sure seemed like he meant what he said. You can know that he is serious about making you pure. You see, while his statement to the, to the Jews in that context was, was confusing to them when he said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, right? it was not a metaphor. And we know that more clearly like the disciples were to find out. He actually meant that they would tear down the dwelling place of God and that He would raise it up again. On the cross, Jesus said, this is how serious I am about seeing you become pure. Seeing you become the undefiled dwelling place of God. He says, I will take your impurities on myself. I will take your brokenness. I will take your shame and your selfishness. I will take your neglect. If your faith is in Christ... Your mistakes, your hate, your taking the easy way out, your laziness, the things that you do that you know are wrong, the things that you do that you don't realize are wrong, your failure to love, your failure to help, your failure to be better the way that you wish you were, all of your shortcomings, He makes those problems His problem. And Jesus says, For my bride I will stop at nothing. And He doesn't take a whip out and drive out the impurities in our hearts. He actually endures a whip. And not just a whip, but the shame of a cruel and painful death on a cross. And not just death, but Jesus himself becomes so shaped by our shame and sin and guilt that his own Father, the object of his love and worship, turns his face away. And the consuming wrath, in fact, the anger of God is kindled not against us, but against Jesus himself. And it's poured out on him so that those who have trusted in Jesus will never feel that wrath. When Jesus was crucified, the Bible tells us that the curtain in the temple that kept the people out of the holiest place was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus' death in paying for our sin allows us to have fellowship with God. To be near to him because Jesus makes us whole. Our question this morning, is that the good news 
that has moved you to trust Him? Have you found Jesus to be a lover so consumed with passion for you that He fights alongside of you for every square inch of your heart, for every part of your life, fighting with you against anything that might harm or deceive you? That's how much Jesus loves us. He's not going to settle until He has every inch of our hearts. Believing that will give us life in His name. Let's pray. God, would You um, convince us this morning as we uh, close in worship, as we get ready to share a meal together, as we think about what it means uh, to follow You, would You convince us that even our most difficult seasons in life are not Your fight against us, but may very well be the, the disruption that comes as you are refining us, reshaping us, reclaiming every inch of our hearts, showing us what it means for a heart to only have you to hold on to. Show, what, show us what it means to, to evidence, um, even evidence to others, evidence to ourselves, what it looks like for a heart to be devoted to the acknowledgement that we need Jesus, that we need nearness to God that's accomplished for us through your work on the cross. Would you draw us to you this morning? Would you convince me of these things? These things are hard for me to believe and harder for me to live according. Would you do that for us more this week? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.